0: Welcome to Founder Stories The Podcast, conversations with David Adelsheim and the 10 founding wine families of Oregon's North Willamette Valley. During each episode, David Adelsheim, founder of Adelsheim Vineyard, will sit down with another early pioneer to recount the collaboration and formation of the Willamette Valley wine industry over the last 50 years. Today, David sits down with Ginny Adelsheim overlooking Quarter Mile Lane Vineyard, the vineyard they planted together in 1971. Enjoy!
1: Our final interview in this series is with Ginny Adelsheim. Ginny and I spent the summer of 1969 in Europe, unconsciously looking for direction in our lives. We were inspired by the foods we ate and the wines that were served. When we got back to Portland, those things remained important to us. After a year and a half with Ginny finishing her BA, me working in a bank, we realized we needed to get closer to the land and the food we ate. Little did we know, that our quest for a place in the country would lead us into wine and the discovery of our future. On October 5th, 2020, Ginny and I talked on the terrace outside the home we built in 1971, which sits on top of our original winery. Well, Ginny, here we are at what's now called the Quarter Mile Lane Vineyard, although it wasn't when we first found it and and bought it. In this series of interviews that we're doing, I'm trying to figure out who are the people that ended up founding the wine business. Because the, the Oregon wine business, particularly the Willamette Valley wine business, is so unique and was so successful in a relatively short period of time and uh, obviously the place had something to do with it and luck, too. But an awful lot of it, I, I think, had to do with the people that really were the founders of the industry. And we've sort of decided we're going to look at the first 10 wineries, the people that planted grapes in the 60s and 70s and made wine before 1980, because it's a, it's a sort of a distinct block of 10 wineries. What I'm trying to get at in, in talking to these people, many of whom have been interviewed a lot, is how did they get into the business? What was in their background that made, it, that made it work somehow? And particularly the connections between the individuals who I think mostly didn't know each other before the wine business started. So obviously we've known each other since 65? 65, I think. Was there something either prior to that or in the years between 65 and 71 that prepared you for what happened in 71?
2: Wow. I know. (laughs) That's a big question. Yeah, it is. Um, But if I can go back all the way to my childhood, I think there were things that went on in my early years that definitely had an impact on me uh, deciding that I could do this. Um, I grew up in a family where both my parents were very cognizant of nature. My dad loved to camp and took us camping every summer. And uh, my mother was uh, not as outdoorsy, but she had a great love of nature and taught us all about the different trees and plants and yeah, she mushrooms knew every plant. she knew all the names plus I think one of the most significant things was the fact that she uh, read Rachel Carson the very first books she wrote were about the sea she wrote three books about the sea and then she wrote um, Silent Spring right. and she read those books to us so I grew up already having an an awareness of our impact on the planet. So that was foundational in my approach to all of this. You know, whatever we did, we needed to be uh, doing it with respect for nature and their place. So was there wine in your family? I mean, did
1: you drink wine? Never,
2: no. We had, my dad liked to come home and have some scotch after work. (laughs) But once we got into the wine business, remember, he started drinking wine. But, uh, I mean, those early years, I want to go back to that just a little bit more because there was one other thing that I think was really important for me and my attitude toward living in the country, and that was that my grandmother, my mother's mother, uh, grew up on a homestead in Indiana, and she was an artist and a writer and wrote all these little stories about her childhood on the homestead and illustrated these stories. They were true stories. And she died when I was just uh, a year old, so I never knew her. But my mother made sure I knew who she was and read these stories to us. So I had a great romantic vision of living in the country and and what it would be like to grow your own food and have chickens and ducks and all that and... uh, yeah, and so that was a that was a really important thing I had in my head always.
1: Wine started to become part of our lives. Um, we got married. I went to Korea for the army. You went for um, as an unaccompanied whatever it was officially called, and we when. I got out of the army, I did it in Korea, and we went to Japan, and then we went to Eastern Russia and took the Trans-Siberian Express all the way to Moscow, eight days of hell. Uh, <laughs> Not at
2: all, it was no kind of amazing, actually. Yeah, it was.
1: Um, <laughs> but spent the summer in Europe that year, and is, do you have specific memories of that trip having anything to do with wine?
2: Yes, um, and food. Those two really went hand in hand for me. Um, I, my first memory of really thinking about food in a different way was when we were in Moscow, actually. I'd lived, you know, we'd lived in Korea for a year and a half at that point, and so I hadn't been eating Western food, really, for quite a while, or it was mm. sort of quasi. Yeah. Um, and when we were in Moscow, one night we went to dinner and I'll never forget this dinner we had. It was incredible. There were these little tiny puff pastry shells with tiny petit pois in them. And stuff like that. And it was like, wow. And then we had a bed and breakfast in Berlin, with two, the two gay men, who were fabulous cooks. And we'd have these ph- phenomenal breakfasts, you know, with just this repast in front of us in little egg cups with, on and on. And But then the thing that I remember the most that really knocked my socks off was when we went to Switzerland and stayed with Aunt Nellie. This was, uh, you remember her. She yeah. was the aunt of Louisette, who we knew in Korea. Right. And Louise had said, well, go see Aunt Nellie when you're in Switzerland. So we drove up to her apartment, tiny little place, and she greeted us at the door and invited us in and fixed us the most amazing little dinner. It was an apple pancake, I believe, that she cooked in one pan. And this was a woman that was probably my age, 75. And she flipped the cake up into the air and caught it in the pan. And then she went outside and snipped some herbs and and she had, you know, by the back steps and made this lovely little, it was a a potato soup with these, you know, chives and parsley in it. And it was so simple and it was so good. It was like, gosh, why haven't I done that? And so when we came back, I was all gung-ho. And you too, we were both really excited about food and wine. and I do remember the wine that we had with that meal, which was a Beaujolais. Wow, I don't remember that at all. (laughs) I mean, the kind of crazy
1: things. Yeah. yeah.
2: So I would say, yes, that that trip was really uh, an eye-opener for me about food and wine.
1: And then it was, I mean, we we got back in the fall of 69. You had a year of school to finish. Mm -hmm. And I worked for a bank for a year or nine months or whatever. What's your memory of that sort of... Period between when we got back and when we started looking for land. What was was food ever increasingly important, or how did that work?
2: The year that we that that year that I was going to Portland State and you were working at the bank, I don't remember actually. Yeah, but I... I remember after that when I was uh, at, had my residency at Contemporary Crafts, and we were living in that duplex with Paul and Rita. Mm. And and we were very much into food and wine at that point. And I don't know when you started teaching wine tasting but that it wasn't wa- until after we bought this. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. we were <clears throat> so interested in it that we started thinking about moving
1: and but but moving from Portland, which was the thing that led to us buying this piece of property, mm-hmm. I mean, it was initially about moving out of the city. Yes. Was that in some way Sort of getting at, your, at the fantasy from your mother's mother.
2: Yeah. I remember saying, we ought to move to the country and build a house. You know, it was like, okay, <laughs> how do we do that? And so we did. We, we started looking for land right after I got through at, Port, at Contemporary Crafts. Right. And then, oh, wait a minute. When I was at Contemporary Crafts, Susan Blosser you think that was before? Yes, I talked to Diana. And she brought Diana Lett to the studio, and I met Diana, and I already, we'd already met Susan and Bill. Okay. So, and that's why Susan brought her to meet me. And I just remember when I met Diana, I just wanted to be her friend. I just had, I fell in love with her, I think. It was <laughs> love at first sight. No, she became a great friend. And still is. Yeah. And she helped me so much through those early years. Because she, you know, if, I, if Diana can do it with what she has on her plate, I certainly can. Yeah.
1: Let's put that yeah. off to the side for a moment. Let's, let's talk about the initial decision to buy this piece and build the house and so forth. In the, in, before we found out that people had planted wine grapes... The fantasy was just about having studios, wasn't yes. it?
2: Yeah, we designed... The, we, uh, I can't remember how long we looked for land before we found this property. Probably three months. I but think. once we found the property and the, and the foundation was already here, 30 oh. by 60 feet, and we, the four of us designed this house that was like a hotel. Remember that? <laughs> the whole 60 feet and then it was three stories and we took it down to get our bird building permit and the guy said i think you you're going to be paying a lot of taxes on this house you better make it that's why we have this flat roof so yeah. we ended up with a 40 foot long house three right. stories and we built that or we're building it and then simultaneously we planted some grapes
1: what was the the role of grapes in your fantasy of moving out here? Was it, was it an important part or you were going, that was somebody else's dream and, yeah.
2: Well, I think that it, um, I, I was perfectly happy to grow grapes, you know, because initially we were talking about, the four of us were talking about growing grapes for our own uh, little winery where we could make enough wine for all of us. But then in the process of looking for land was when we we came in contact with David and Diana and, of course, the Eras and the Sokal Blossers. And that was when you got the bee in your bonnet that this could be much more than just some wine for us. And that was, I think, why we chose this property at that point, because we wanted more land. We needed more land to, to make... Make it a commercial venture, but we still stuck with the idea of the four
1: studios and <laughs> right. So early in our joining the wine industry, it was four of us who were here: Paul and Rita. Who uh, Rita was your longtime friend. Mm-hmm. Paul was first her whatever, and then her husband. Um, Explain who they were, how they how they were part of this, and.
2: Well, Rita, Rita and I went uh, to high school together. And then when I uh, moved out of my folks' house, she and I rented a, a, a place in Portland while I was at Portland State. And we lived in the same house together with Barbara and Bob Pickett. Right. And, um, and then after we came back from Korea, we got connected again with Rita and Paul. I think they were together by then. And we lived in the duplex, and we were all doing our thing, you know,
1: artistically. So, does that answer the question? Yeah, about and and they were part of the search for land, mm-hmm. and we were going to, in essence, build a duplex, right? Um, and just continue what we were doing in Portland. Um, they, in once we moved into the house, no, it was. This house, you mean? Yeah, once we moved into this house, a year later they got married, and then in 74, which was two years after that, they got divorced. Right, and And left. they were out of the whole picture at that point. That's right. Um, And that left us with a... (laughs) Big job. (laughs) A big job and a big house and a big um, commitment that, that we had made to this place, that we somehow had to carry on. So the chronology is, 71, we bought this property on June 4th, which is the 50th anniversary that we're celebrating and doing all these about. We built this house that year, more or less, um, and actually moved in the day after Halloween because some kids had spilled paint around on, the, on some plywood um.
2: actually what they did was we were in the process of tarring the flat roof, this yeah. and we had a bucket with tar in it and a broom and they came in and they took the broom and the tar and they put tar around, made a mess yeah. so that was our decision to move in Right. No windows in the No bedroom. windows, no insulation, no sheetrock, of course, no, no flooring. We had some subflooring. No stairs, ladders only. <laughs> <laughs> that lasted for quite a while. <laughs> it did. We got good at those ladders. Yeah. And remember that first winter? It was cold. It, we were in that, room, that right bedroom, yeah. and it was... The coldest winter we ever experienced here. It was 18 degrees, and thank God for that electric blanket. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought I'd like electric blankets, but I did that winter.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think one of the things that people looking at the wine industry today and seeing vast vineyards and modern wineries and, and people who do a lot of traveling in conjunction with their businesses is that somehow uh, everybody was very rich and uh, I think they don't understand what things were like um, for everybody really in the beginning. Were any of the other founders in your mind much, much richer than we were? Oh,
2: oh gosh. I don't really think of any of us as being rich. Our our living conditions were a little uh, compromised compared to other people because we were building our own house and we never had enough money to get it finished. Or time, more importantly, maybe, even. That was a big challenge for both of us, yeah. was trying to figure out how to do it all. And plus, we had to work. You were working in uh, restaurants. You were at Lomlad and I was at Crepe Fair and trying yeah. to be an artist. And
1: Yeah, just, uh, I mean, once... 1975 came around we were able to hire Bill Doane and um, Dennis I think Dennis Butler to do some of the work in the vineyard so that we didn't end up having to do all of that but that was it was still at a time when there wasn't a workforce right. to do the vineyards and so uh, in essence we had to do it or we had to somehow figure out how to have friends do it, or have, get help. Well, we did,
2: and we used our friends, mercilessly, <laughs> no. <laughs> Remember those big planting parties we'd have? Yeah. We'd...
1: I mean, that vineyard that is the, the remnant of, of the early plantings, 1974, we, in essence, had a party, I don't know what month it was, probably May, where we had a bunch of friends out. And And our parents. Our parents. Yeah. And and planted all 2.5 acres of that in one pretty long morning.
2: Yeah. And then we fed them really well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or at least a lot of
2: carbohydrates. (laughs) (laughs) And then when Bob and Barbara were living with us, Barbara and I laid out all the, well, what is that now? It's not Chardonnay anymore. Um, it,
1: it, down there? Oh, yes, it, it, it was Chardonnay. Yeah, but it isn't now. It, uh, it actually is. Is it? Yeah. Oh, are those the original vines? Uh, it was originally Riesling. Chardonnay was beyond that. No, this was new Chardonnay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we definitely got,
2: got help from our family and friends. It was It was a huge, huge thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty consistent across the wineries. A lot of people from one winery went over to the other, another winery, and helped them plant. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it, it's certainly sort of the the barn raising approach to planting vineyards. That's for sure. Yeah. There was a lot involved in things that had to do with the wine industry. Obviously, we were entering somehow into this wine industry. As you said, you were a ceramic artist. You were trying to do that as well. What role did you have besides in the the world of art? What was your role in our wine business and in the wine business?
2: Outside of my art? Yeah. Well, initially, everything. In the first years, we both did everything. We planted and we uh, built. Um, I learned how to do all the various things that one does in a winery. And in 1980, I actually ran Crush because you were gone. I found the notes on that, and it was like, "Wow, I did that!" <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where and, I was. And I think you were in Europe. No, not I me. Mean, but you I mean, weren't there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, and I learned how to prune and pull brush and all that stuff. And then once we had employees, um, we were actually making wine. That totally changed our existence, too, because at that point, we were into marketing, and so I was doing some distribution. I'd take, you know, down, I'd go south to Salem and Corvallis and Eugene. And we had wine tastings here, and I'd have to completely redo the house and make it into a wine tasting facility. (laughs) My friends thought that was amazing, actually. (laughs) I learned quickly that I I didn't want to have any furniture that I couldn't move myself. (laughs) And we put on dinners, and that was really important too. Even though we didn't have a fancy place, we had a lot of really important people come through here in those early years. There was a lot of interest, even before Robert came. Drouin. Drouin, yeah. excuse me. Um, yeah. There was a lot of interest from from Europe because Rebro Gaillon came here. Yeah. Why did he do that?
1: I think he was, this, is a, this is a professor from the University of Bordeaux, um, but he gave, a, I think, um, somebody Convinced him to do a lecture at, in Portland. Maybe it was at Portland State. And either after that lecture or the next day or something, we had him to dinner with a bunch of... Oh, it was over 20... It was like 25 people. Yeah.
2: How did you do that? <laughs> How did you get hold of him and, and invite uh, it him It wasn't to me.
1: It, oh. it was... I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that it was... It was, it was probably Corey or... It could have been left, but it, it certainly wasn't me. I didn't know him. Wow. Well, it's interesting because
2: uh, we didn't have the greatest accommodations at that point. I remember what, what we did. And we made a table out of sawhorses and two pieces of four by eight plywood to accommodate all those people. It took that whole end of the house. Remember that? And a bolt of upholstery fabric for the dining table cloth. <laughs> And there was subfloor and no insulation. It was just stud walls. And it was very romantic. It was. It was very romantic. And I'm sure they were all incredibly amused. Well, yeah. And, and then we put on this incredible dinner. Do, would you like to know what we served?
1: <laughs> it's, it's scary, actually.
2: It's so scary. <laughs> I mean, th- this was really beyond the pale. Okay, December 7th, 1975, we had shrimp mousse and crudités, then chicken consomme with sorrel. Then we had sweetbreads italienne, a la Julia Child, which I prepared. I don't know how many, it was a mountain of sweetbreads. I'd never eaten sweetbreads or seen sweetbreads, but I took the membranes off of all of those sweetbreads. Wild rice pilaf fresh broccoli, pea pods, and water chestnuts, marinated cucumbers, zucchini, and lettuce salad, and adobo's torte for a dessert.
1: Which is like 12
2: layers of... 12 or twenties.
1: Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a many-layer cake. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and that's just one... That's exa- one. I mean, there there were all sorts of people. I mean, Aubert Divalin stayed in the fireplace room or whatever. I don't yeah. know where he stayed, but he... He stayed.
2: was upstairs on the other side of the... Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Yes, that was really incredible, too. I mean, Kermit Lynch stayed here. Uh, Uber, Uber Trimbach came to dinner. Yeah. Yeah, we had amazing people come to our house and eat with us and stay with us.
1: And, and obviously, we <coughs> once we were seriously into selling wine, we had a lot of distributors and some people in retail stores or restaurants who would visit or stay or whatever.
2: What's his name? Uh, Who was the guy that wrote the wine page? Uh, The guy for the Oregonian that wrote their uh, wine column. Uh, Matt Kramer? Yeah. Did he come out? Yeah, he came.
1: I'm surprised we fed him.
2: We did, but
1: he didn't like it. (laughs) I remember that. Uh. One One of the things that is emerging as I've talked to these 10 families, is in a more sexist time, which the 1970s really was, the role of women was one less defined vis-a-vis wine. I mean, a lot of these conversations were driven by the, the male part of the couple, um, particularly when it came to particularly when it came to winemaking, mm-hmm. which only slowly opened up to women. Did you remember having conversations with other women, either in Yamhill County or more generally, about this at that time? Well,
2: mainly in the context of the role that we just assumed out of necessity, which had a lot to do with entertaining and making uh, making the wine industry a hospitable industry for people that came here to find out about us. That was a very important role that we all played.
1: It's interesting that in Washington County, the women ended up, in essence, driving the marketing and tasting room sales aspect of Washington County. And I think it's because that was closer to Portland and they were trying to attract visitors from Portland. Um, Many of them had some version of a tasting room I don't know that it was as formal as what we would talk about as a tasting room today but they were trying to get visitors out on the weekends and they did a lot of events but in my memory that wasn't what we were doing in Yamhill County I don't believe we
2: were and I remember I was adamantly against it do you remember that yeah. partially or maybe totally, because our house was our business, and I didn't want a tasting room basically in my house. And people were already driving up and knocking on the door and assuming that it was just fine to, you know, wander around in the vineyard and come there, in the house. There was a and, wine editor from uh, Sunset Magazine, oh. I believe. <laughs> that was so bad. <laughs> I don't know if I should tell this story. Yeah, you should. I should. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Well, this was right after Lizzie was born, and it was a hot summer day, and um, I was out on the deck. Liz, Lizzie, I was literally, literally nursing Lizzie, and uh, I heard a car drive up, and it was Bridget. Oh, I can't think of her last name. She worked for um, uh, School of Arts and Crafts, and somehow or other, she had brought the editor of Sunset Magazine, out here without letting me know ahead of time. So I open the door, you know, I'm just wearing the most horrendous outfit ever. And, uh, and she introduces me right there on the doorstep. What am I gonna do? So I invite him in. <laughs> I, or I didn't invite him into the house. I did not want them coming into the house. So I invited him out onto the deck. And I had this, uh, it was an army cot that you had. You remember those things that fold up? It's just mm-hmm. like a sling of canvas. Mm. And she sat down on it, and the whole thing collapsed. I was like, what next? <laughs> and actually, after that, I don't remember what happened. <laughs> I was in shock at that it point. It almost doesn't matter. No. Yeah. That was a bad scene, but anyway.
1: Yeah, but but that's, I mean, that gets to your point that the address of this house was the address of the winery. Yeah. And so people perhaps not quite as distinguished as the editor of Sunset Magazine would show up thinking that this was Napa Valley and th- there would be a big tasting room and, and, and all that, yeah. which of course there wasn't. Yeah. It seems to me that Yamhill County was more interested in distribution Distribution outside of Oregon. Huh. I mean, we made the first wine in 1978, and in 79 we had a distributor in Washington, and in 81, I think we had Annie Hinsdale in Oregon. I mean, we, we quickly started realizing that we needed distributors, uh, and then after that, with Steve Carey, the the broker who took on a business of, of of helping wineries establish things around the country, and that became the focus rather than trying to get people out for the weekend. Mm-hmm. But even so, it was really the Letts that invented Wine Country Thanksgiving. I remember even, uh, even the year I worked for them, which was 1973, that we ended, ended up having to figure out how to get all the fruit flies out of the winery mm-hmm. before Thanksgiving after harvest so that we could have all the guests come in. Um, and um, that was probably the, I imagine it was the second Wine Country Thanksgiving that they did. When did when did the wine
2: industry take over that date? And then, I, and it I
1: think it was, it, it was certainly, it, it was it was certainly after we started having wine to sell which would have been in 1979 to 81 or 82 but it it was not it, it's it's got to be in the early 80s i think that it became a more generalized thing much to diana's dismay i think initially but
2: uh, didn't matter david
1: uh, well i don't know that yeah
2: um
1: I, that's I, it that's an interesting question.
2: Well, I think it would, if it, it mattered to Diana, it certainly would have mattered to David because that was kind of like their special time to, you know, have their own event right. for the public, and then yeah. it, it became the entire Willamette yeah. Valley yeah. event. Yeah. Well, which took then some then, of the business away from, you know, more yeah. com- competition for sure.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's only gotten worse. I mean, mm-hmm. it's now all of Oregon, and it's a, uh, it, it, it's almost become a. a a distraction rather than a a real opportunity at this point Mm -hmm. but back in those days a fair amount of wine was sold on those weekends Uh, even after it translated into something that we could participate in it 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 was certainly the biggest weekend of sales that we had yeah and there weren't there weren't many other I, i mean as you said we had to somehow totally clean out the the house to be able to do it initially. Mm-hmm. Um, we started doing our own event, the Rain Revels. Right. In, what was that, late May or something? Yeah. Maybe the beginning of June, which was our attempt to create a second event. Uh, How many of those do we do? About six? Six or so, yeah. And you did... You did invitations? I did those Rain Revels cartoons.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the guys in the wetsuits.
1: <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> yeah, I did. Because it was always raining. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the joke was that it was Rain Revels, and if it actually rained, it was a disaster because yeah. we had no place for anybody to be. So right. we were hoping that the rain <laughs> didn't actually happen. Um So, uh, obviously, you and Diana were probably, that was probably your closest friend, at least in the wine business at that point, right? In in the 70s and early 80s? Oh yeah. What kinds of things did you do, either that had nothing to do with wine, or that, in essence, helped build up the wine business, that didn't have to do with David and me?
2: That didn't have anything to do with. Wait. Yeah, well, that we weren't
1: asking you to do for us, or oh, in that sense, I mean.
2: Well, um, I think most of my contributions were artistic, because that was really the those were the skills that I had to offer, and I did a number of things for Salute. Um, well, why don't we? Let's. Oh. Let, no,
1: no, no, that, that's fine. But that comes later. So why oh. don't we talk? Why don't we talk first about how you used your art for our business? Oh, okay. I think that makes sense. And and maybe you can take us through sort of the the fantasies before we actually had wine to sell. hummingbird. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, the fantasies before we had wine to sell and then once we actually had to get some labels and what your thinking was on that. Before we had wine to sell? Well, it was the... Chief Shehalem Faco label that we did for something that you put on something? And... We didn't ever use that on no. anything.
2: No. No. <laughs> I think that was Susanna's actually, <laughs> her idea. Was that, it? With the ducks out there in the pond, that was part of the label. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, well, once we had wine and you know, we had to think about how to sell it, that was when I thought about drawing um, people because that's what I could do. I'd done a lot of portraiture, so it made sense to draw somebody. Um, but the very, should I show you the bottle sure, now? absolutely. Um, this was the very first label I drew, which um, was a black and white drawing, actually. It was just a graphite pencil drawing, and then the color was, um, you know, added later. Sure. But it's not a person that I know. It was just a fantasy face, and it was supposed to be a vineyard spirit, <laughs> something like that. And it has uh, grapes growing along the top of the label, and I did <clears throat> I always was very careful to do the botanically correct drawing of the vine. La- so that's vine. a semi vine. That's a semi vine.
1: And uh, And, and I, you would have drawn that in the spring of 79, probably. Or, I mean, we would have bottled that be in June or July of 79. Yeah. And <clears throat> my memory is that we filled, corked, labeled, and foiled all at the same time. So in essence, those labels needed to be done for that operation.
2: Yeah. And the reason I decided to draw uh, that particular concept is because I was very enamored of uh, Art Nouveau, which was uh, a, a very organic um, art movement, actually. It was really hearkening back to life and growth. There was a lot of plant material involved in, 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 art, de, in art Nouveau design. And uh, so that was part of the concept that I was trying to get
1: at. And there were certainly others who were doing some version of an Art Nouveau label. I mean, what was the guy's name in California that did... A couple of labels, um, did Chez Panisse's... Uh, oh, uh, yeah, Goines. Yeah. John Lance John Lance Goines. No,
2: something like that. I don't that. remember his yeah first name, but uh, yeah, he had a was a beautiful designer. I I wouldn't necessarily say Art Nouveau, oh, but okay. but he was he was definitely somebody that influenced me and in his sort of graphic approach. Um and then when, uh, should I keep going sure. on this? <clears throat> and then the next drawing I did was, for these two wines were from grapes that we bought because we didn't have our own fruit at that point. Well, we had so little that Yeah, we... there wasn't enough to bottle. So in order to, you know, sell some wine and make some money, we bought uh, from Sagemore, Merlot and Semio, And so... The Sammy of the Merlot was the first actual portrait I drew, and that's of my oldest dear friend Connie, Connie Keener, and who lived with us, she and her daughter lived with us for two years, and during that time I had, you know, she was my captive model, so I drew her for the first, uh, first Merlot label. She was a very good model. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I mean, the first one you invented the person. Yeah. What was what was your thinking that you should do a different person on the second label? You, did you I were tell the you thinking. You had
2: to do that. You always wanted a new face for every wine, don't you remember? <laughs> I was kidding. I used up every one of my friends and their daughters. And how many labels did we do? A lot. Okay, this is the time I whip out the cards. Okay. We show you how many labels. There are actually a few that aren't in here. Yeah, I was going to say. But uh, these are more or less all of the portraits. And that's the Vineyard portrait, Winter. But there's Simeon, there's the Merlot. Oh, I should talk about Scott. Scott Whitehurst. I did one, one label that was not a female. Scott Whitehurst was our our neighbor boy that lived right over there, and he worked in the winery for a while. And he, um, I thought, well, I should do a guy. You know, I shouldn't just have women on the labels. So I drew Scott right here, reclining under a grapevine. (laughs) And it didn't sell too well, so I went back to women.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to pour some wine just in case.
2: Oh, boy, just what I need.
1: Thanks, what is it? It's uh, 2015 Bubbles oh, Rosé. Nice. A label that not only did you have nothing to do with, I had nothing to do with.
2: <laughs> Here's the Merlot original drawing so you can see oh, what, yeah. it, what it looked like before it was in color. Does that make any sense? Yeah. So, did you taste it? I did. How is it? Nice. Jeez. Cheers. Mm, lovely
1: what year is it Fifteen. 15 oh five years old oh yeah no wow. I mean bubbles are supposed to age mmm that's really nice Brr. it's
2: cold I know I'm shaking <laughs> <laughs>
1: The first series of labels were more, I mean, they morphed from that to being more full color with the Rita label and the famous Diana label down at the bottom. These three, yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, in, oh, explain them. Okay, well,
2: um, as I recall, you were interested in full color. And I had never really thought in color because I don't think in color. And I was just interested in doing these sort of, you know, one color drawings. And, um, but you convinced me that we should go into the color thing. And so I decided that these labels, where there was a portrait and the vineyard in the background, should um, reflect those old fruit, turn-of-the-century turn fruit labels you know, if you remember, they often had a portrait of the fruit, you know, like a big peach in the foreground. And then there would be this beautiful orchard, you know, going off into the distance. And, and that was my idea. <laughs> Only instead of a big grape cluster, <laughs> there'd
1: be a person's head. <laughs> that was the concept. And I, I keep that out oh, for a second. Okay. I mean, the first was Rita, the, the woman that was part of part the original. Part of original, original Yeah. yeah. And the, the second and third were Diana Lett in, for the Pinot Noir mm-hmm. and Barbara Pickett, your friend from Portland State right. for the Chardonnay. Right. Why them and.
2: Well, Barbara, um, all the people that I used on, that I did portraits of, had a connection to the winer, to, to our business somehow. And Barbara and Bob, you know, of course, lived with us for a year. And she and I, as I said earlier, laid out the whole Chardonnay block ourselves with those big, long pieces of, uh, what do they call that? It's not wire. Cable. Cable. And you had, oh, this was so cool. You had all these lead weights that you were gonna use to hammer into the keys on the back of the, the back of the harpsichord we built. There's a whole bag of them, <laughs> and we took those lead weights and hammered them onto the cable at every, how many feet between the, where the grapes were going to be? Six, I think. So we yeah. had those things. whack. I don't know how we thought that up. That was so weird. <laughs> anyway, that was why Barbara got to be on the Chardonnay label, because she laid out the Chardonnay with me. <laughs> And Diana, of course, because she's a, she and David are the founders of the industry. So that was my thank you to them. Not that it was necessarily any great honor to be on our label, but well, I, she nicely I, said yes. I've often wondered what they thought. Have you ever asked that question of any of them? Diana is too nice to
1: say. I'll ask her this afternoon, we'll don't, see. Don't put her on the spot, <laughs> that's not fair. Okay. Um, so, as, so go ahead.
2: Okay, so so those were kind of like you know hearkening back to the old fruit labels. Right. Then when we got into the single vineyard wines, I got to go back to my original concept, which was simple portraits, no color, uh, just um, just as well rendered as I could do them. And uh, I remember the book I got when I was in Italy. Uh, this beautiful book on Del Sarto, Andrea Del Sarto, because I was there when they had that special exhibit in Florence. Mm-hmm. I bought this huge book of all the drawings for his frescoes, and that really inspired me. Is that third bottle the outcome? Yeah. That I guess that was the first portrait I did after coming back of Lizzie. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> it's hard to tell. <laughs> and...
1: and So 86 was the the first Lizzie and 2015 was the last Lizzie. Um, So that's a 30-year run. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, And that, that label, other than sort of being reconfigured physically, I mean, the portrait stayed the entire time. And I think it, even as the Full color drawings ended up being quite controversial. I think people looked at the Lizzie and 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 really the 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 Chardonnay version of that, which was Connie's daughter Caitlin. Mm-hmm. They looked at those labels as really classic wines and quite ageless and timeless.
2: Yeah, which is how I felt about it too from the beginning. Yeah. So. Those were the, the concepts, and the, um, except for Connie, uh, all of the uh, single vineyard wines were daughters, starting with Lizzie and then uh, Caitlin, who's our goddaughter. Um, you know, she was next, and then Rita's daughter. Uh, yeah,
1: we don't have that up there, but yeah.
2: There were other ones. Oh, and, and Bill and Terry's daughter, Rihanna, yeah. yeah.
1: So that was that was the reason for them. <laughs> oh. I mean, the labels were obviously for our winery, but you also did a, a, a range of. I mean, you put your artistic approach to things to use that benefited the entire industry too. What do you mean? Well, I mean, t-shirts and oh, oh, yeah, yeah, oh. Yeah, yeah. well, well,
2: yeah, that was pretty minimal, but it was it was something. Yeah. Um, I was. Uh, Honored when I was asked to um, three separate times to do things for Salud. Mm. I one one year I did the this was the last thing I did. You can't see this because this is the mold for the little Salud coaster that we gave out. And then one year I did uh, tiles for everyone that said IPNC on them with and the date. This was for '87. This is not one that I was like the one I sold though because it's glaze wasn't on it, on the ones. And then, um, and then this was a coaster I did. Well, actually, that's for the winery, but that was the old logo. Yeah. And then I don't have a picture of it, but I did a portrait for um, Salud that was of one of the uh, vineyard managers, a Hispanic man. I did a big portrait of him that they used for some purpose. I can't oh, remember. for Salud, probably, got that Asked me to do that. Oh. And what else did I do? The t-shirt for for uh, Steamboat. Wanna see the t-shirt? That uh this says Steamboat Conference and there is a big wave, kind of a la Hiroshige. Yeah. <laughs> and with a barrel and it says Pinot Noir, and the steam the S in steamboat is a two Trout jumping up and making an S because it's such a great river for fishing.
1: Steamboat is a is is a place on the North Umpqua River fishing lodge that it it became starting in nineteen seventy-nine a summer long weekend retreat for the Pinot Noir producers of uh, particularly California and Oregon, then increasingly uh, Burgundians and people from around the world were brought to it. It was a, it was really the thing that helped propel the quality of American Pinot Noir rapidly upward, um, and. Um, we were not in the first two because it happened before we really had wine, but we were pretty much a part of it after that, uh, which is why you were asked to do that, I'm sure, in part. Yeah. I think the overriding question that is remains in my mind is how much of what came of of this business is an outgrowth of your grandmothers' stories and, and the fantasies that you built around country living, how much of it was fulfilled by that, and how much of it was an, an entirely new life that you could not have fantasized?
2: Well, I don't think that the homestead life, which is all that my grandmother ever knew, was really anything like what we did, but it was what propelled me to want to do want to take a leap to to go to the country. Because she was a little girl, you know, riding horses bareback and making soap and I don't know, all that sort of thing. And, you know, we ended up buying land to make a commercial, uh, you know, business, which is totally different. And it required a kind of um, discipline and uh, sacrifice that that I couldn't have imagined. And not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just it was just totally different. And w- everything we did, I we learned on the job, at least I
1: did pretty much. Well, I think the industry did in a certain sense. How much of that was in essence group learning of of you, us, others in the industry and how much of it did you in essence have to figure out yourself?
2: Well, I think it was all those things. I don't know how to how to qualify or or separate it because we were all learning individually, but we were also constantly having to interact to figure out stuff. You know, you were constantly in touch with with David and Dick and and Dick Ponzi and all of those people. Because everything was, all of it was being figured out for the first time. I mean, I remember days and days of you pouring over those topographical maps, trying to figure out all the places you could possibly grow grapes in the hill, you know, in Willamette Valley, and and, uh, working really hard to get the labeling laws changed, and things like that, which were... Really not for us personally so much as for the industry and it influenced not just Oregon, but other places So but uh, I was definitely trying to learn everything I could as we were doing it.
1: Were you? I mean All of this was going on in the day before the internet so you couldn't look up anything without going to a library or buying a book or somehow doing whatever Did you, were there research projects that you ended up having to get into in some sense in order to solve an issue or a problem?
2: Having to do with wine? Yeah. No. That was really your job. (laughs) (laughs) I was was trying to still do, you know, work on the house and and be an artist because I was still having shows. Right. And, uh doing a little bit of teaching. I taught one term, I taught at Portland State for a term because uh, Ray went on my... Oh, yeah. Ray Grimm went on sabbatical, and I taught at PCC. And, uh, I had a, one or two shows every year of my artwork. So I just really expected and assumed that you would figure it all out. <laughs>
1: at least that part, the wine part. So, uh, I mean, a fair amount of what fell to you is creating cash so that we would not starve to death. No.
2: I wouldn't say I, I created enough cash to keep us from starving to death. I barely made any money, but it was important to make whatever I did. Um, I don't know you. Well, you worked in the restaurants.
1: Well, I mean, until until I couldn't work, obviously. And, and
2: I worked in a restaurant. Yeah. For a while there, I don't know. We somehow managed. One of the things I, you know, you asked me earlier what was one of the jobs I had that wasn't art-related. And I would say one of the jobs wasn't ever, you know, I didn't have it on a job description or anything. But I really was a liaison between the employees and you. Because you were really busy and a lot of times you were not here because you were traveling. And so I sort of became the, the go-between. And that was, that actually was a really important role because they'd come to me and say I need this or that or you know, whatever and then I'd...
1: But find me in a good mood and,
2: yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Beat you over the head.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, I I think that's an important point because um, particularly once we were having to sell wine, um, there was a lot of travel just to be where the wine was being sold. Yeah. Did you do any of that travel for the sale of wine?
2: Oh yeah. Well, not out of the state, but I did. And you know, as I said earlier, yeah. I would, I would take wine. That was when, that was in 1980, 81, when yeah. I was doing that, and I was pregnant actually for part of that time. Mm-hmm. It was getting hard to carry those cases. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to bring up the whole. Uh, One of the issues that has always been um, important to me was how the industry affects the environment. And as we grew, as the the Oregon wine industry grew, I became more and more distressed because I realized this was a huge thing that was happening in Oregon and many, many areas of, of... you know, the countryside were being put into grapes and I was thinking, oh my God, are we gonna have another monoculture? You know, what's happening? Oh no, these fences are going up. How are, how are the wild animals gonna be able to find the corridors to get up and down the mountain? Those were things that really upset me. And for a while there, I didn't feel like there was enough concern about it. But I am happy to say that now I see a totally different attitude, where people in the industry are much more, and it's a lot of it is the second generation, because they've grown up with a realization of the environment and how how uh, uh, critical it is that we we change some of our practices and and really uh, be good stewards. So that that's something that I've continued to be interested in, even though I'm no longer
1: involved. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a good point about the second generation uh, formalizing that. I think in the early days, I mean, you hinted at that always being a concern, and I think we always thought that we were doing the right thing. Um, We were trying not to spray herbicides, and we were trying to make decisions that made sense. Sometimes our employees, particularly after we got bigger, ended up going in directions that weren't necessarily in keeping with what we were doing. But I, I think we, after the turn of the century, certainly got involved with live and got involved with um, being much more critical about what went on and what we would allow to be sprayed um, and, and trying to understand the balance between driving through the vineyard too much and spraying the chemicals you needed to keep powdery mildew from taking over the vineyard so yeah, yeah.
2: also just the whole concept of um, uh, how do we share the uh, the land with the, the wildlife what what kind of compromises are we willing to make um, fencing being an important one for me uh but you know the way the soil is treated and those are things that are that hadn't really been thought about in the beginning or at least I didn't I wasn't aware of it but now I I mean Mimi Castile and other people are really uh very much involved with that and that's super important
1: Yeah, and it's uh, particularly in, in now that we see the effects of global warming on, on where we are, um, going through and tilling soil um, and in essence unbinding the carbon that has been sequestered in that soil is something you don't want to do an awful lot yeah. in, in, to try to keep CO2 from escaping. Obviously, we've come a long way from 1971 and the, and the early days of the wine industry. It's arguably very successful. Um, it's known around the world. What are aspects of that that you're particularly proud about?
2: Well, I just think the fact that that we became a successful agricultural industry is something to be proud of. And, uh, and I will continue to be proud of it as long as the industry uh, produces good wine and, uh, and continues to really care about the environment so that we can coexist in a sustainable way. And uh, I am happy that I was a part of the, the industry before it was an industry when it was an idea a concept and we were able to create what we wanted without any prior influence really at least not in Oregon that was a, that was so freeing just to see what we could do and not have to worry that oh my god that person already did it or they did it better you know that was that was a wonderful thing plus there were so few of us that we really had a kind of Familial camaraderie in the way that we approached everything, and I and I don't think it's easy to do that when industry gets to be
1: so big. Listen to the birds; (laughs) must be having a feast. Well, they may. They've got whole vineyards to deal with. Yeah. Are there are there things that distress you about what has happened so far in the in the wine business? Well. Or or is it more about Uh, hoping that good decisions continue to be made?
2: I think that's that's it. I'm not exactly distressed, but I am uh, concerned because whenever agriculture becomes a big industry, you have risks. You know, you're more in competition with the natural environment, so you have to be more careful. And I mean. But I think that the Oregon wine industry has a good mentality about that. I'm not so sure about other places. So, yeah, I feel confident.
1: The one last thing I'd like to sort of get my hands around, and it's sort of the reason for doing these interviews, is what are the unique things that we still see in the wine industry today that grew out of or that had their origins in that founding period, and the distinct aspects of the founding of this this wine industry, particularly in the North Willamette Valley. i'm I'm thinking partly because nobody had money. Did that lead us to make certain decisions? Uh, I mean, this industry is so different than many of the New World wine industries. How so? Well, it focuses on one grape variety. Nobody does that. It is largely an industry of small wineries. Almost all states end up with a San Michel or a, 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 a Gallo or whatever. And, and there are a couple of bigger things, but there's nothing. And those wineries aren't the the epitome of the industry. The, it's, it's the wineries you can go out and visit and actually meet the people that own it and make the wine that are the image of this industry. Mm-hmm. Does that trace itself back to the beginnings when nobody had money?
2: Uh, well, it certainly seems to be the case, but I wouldn't know unless I talked to those people yeah. <laughs> if, they, yeah. if they were, imp- you know, uh, rep- trying to replicate those early days in their in their in their approach. But I'm happy if Oregon maintains that uh, smaller winery approach rather than you know the giant mega wineries, because I just you know I just believe in small. I think you have better quality, a better stewardship. Um, You're not turning into some sort of ultra rich business that usually to me is not necessarily a very good thing. But um, yeah, I, it's hard to really answer that question because I haven't been a part of the Oregon wine industry now for quite a few years, so I haven't been able to have firsthand knowledge of, of the, the wineries that are coming on. But I do feel a lot of hope just because, like I said earlier, um, the second generation of winemakers, wine people that grew up in this industry and took over when their parents got tired <laughs> or died, um, are a wonderful group who seem to have the same kind of uh, ideals that we
1: had. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And they seem to be taking on the mantle of collaboration. Yeah. Which was so critical for us, as you, as you talked about, that a lot of the problems we couldn't have solved on our own, uh-huh. we could solve together. Right. Uh, And I see that continuing to happen. I think it always helps if you don't have somebody with so much money that they think they can do it on their own. Uh And uh, although, obviously, the wine business, there are more people coming into it who bring wealth to it, uh, I think the the center core of the wine business remains um, the, the spiritual inheritors of our maybe impoverished is a little bit too extreme, but uh, <laughs> not having a, the luxury of a lot of money to be able to do marketing campaigns and um, hire consultants and, and and that kind of thing. Yeah,
2: yeah, I, that's
1: that's very true. So thank you for coming out and um, exploring the the period of forty and fifty years ago, which was so obviously transformative for our lives but i think um is expressed I, I think it's not too extreme to say that there are expressions of what we helped create back then that one still sees today in the wine industry yeah
2: i'll drink to that okay <laughs> <laughs> thanks <Dave>. thanks <laughs> thank you
0: for listening to founder stories the podcast this episode was produced by Adelsheim Vineyard in partnership with House Below Productions. New episodes are released monthly, and you can find them on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Visit our website, adelsheim.com 50 years to watch full interviews of David Adelsheim with the other founders of the Willamette Valley wine industry. And join us as we pay homage to half a century of lofty dreams, pioneering spirits, and world-class wine.